0: Good morning, so good to be here. Uh, my name's Jackson Randall, I'm an elder here at Grace. Uh, I'm primarily over at the La Mirada campus working with our youth, so I do not get to make my way over here all that often, but I am so glad to be with you here today. Uh, some of you I know and I love dearly, others I have not met and I would love to meet you, so please come say hey to me after the service. Um, but I count it a distinct privilege to be able to come and preach at Fullerton because my wife and I and our baby son live in Fullerton. We are Fullerton people. We live right behind the high school with many of you uh, in the apartment complex up there. And this is just the community that we do life in and that we love. And and so when we're living our life um, we're rubbing shoulders mostly with Fullerton people. Um, that's the sort of coffee shops we hang out at, or hang out in, and the grocery stores we're in. And when we go to eat, we're in Fullerton. And even the people that we talk to and invite to church, we're normally pushing them towards Grace Fullerton, even. And so to be here with you all is just really neat to me. Um, I really love uh, the opportunity to come and herald the word. I feel like one of you, even though I maybe don't know all of you. And so thank you so much for having me, uh, for being willing to come and gather, that we might sit under the word together like this this morning. Uh, But that is why we are gathering. We're gathering that we might hear the word, that we might sit under the word. So if you would, why don't you open your Bibles with me to First Peter chapter 2? We have a lot to cover this morning, so I'd love it if we could go ahead and dive on in. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. And we're going to be in verses 18 through 25 this morning. So if you would read along with me. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbly uh, recognizing uh, the sometimes difficult nature of your word, Lord, would you give us eyes to see and hearts to receive what you have for us this morning? Would your spirit powerfully and wonderfully apply this? May Christ become beautiful in our minds this morning. Help us, Lord. We need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I read a passage like this, uh, it, it makes me think that sometimes we as Christians can be a people who who are tempted to reduce what it means to be a Christian to the more palatable aspects of Christianity we can think that what it means to be a Christian is all about just loving people a little bit more being a little more kind being a little bit more hospitable um, th- these are things that I think culture by and large really likes and enjoys it's attractive to people and so I think even traditionally, historically, maybe not so much anymore, but I think this is why a lot of our culture has even been willing to embrace certain Christian principles, morals, and values, and why even a large percentage of our population has been willing to even self-identify as a Christian, even if they do not surrender to Christ as Lord. I come from the South, uh, the Bible Belt, and so this sort of thing is everywhere. There are cultural Christians everywhere, people who claim to, to know Christ and to love Christ only to to not really know him at all. Their lives don't demonstrate that in the slightest. But I think we love certain aspects of Christianity. There's certain palatable aspects of Christianity. And these are good. We love these. But then, every once in a while, a passage comes along, such as 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, and these passages come and they hit us like a sledgehammer to the chest, and they lay bare the nature of Christianity. And so passages like this, or really all of 1 Peter, Peter's been doing this now for a while, it lays bare for us the radical and countercultural nature of Christianity. It is more more than simply palatable things. This is a life-changing sort of thing. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be an alien and an exile. It means to be a stranger in a foreign land. It means that we die to ourselves and we live to Christ. And so Peter has beautifully and wonderfully been laying this out for us now for two chapters. He's been telling us our identity. And it's a sort of radical identity. One that really blows the different categories that we have in our mind of what it means to be a Christian. And he's done this wonderfully. He's helped us to see who we truly are. But now he wants to shift gears a little bit and say, okay, now what does it mean to live in light of that? Practically, what does it mean to be an alien in an exile? Practically, what does it mean to be a stranger in a foreign land? And so that's what Peter wants to deal with here in our passage. Practically, what does that mean? We love to think practically, right? We always are hankering for practicality, but then every once in a while we get a passage that gives us practical, and we find that it could actually be a bit difficult. And so here, Peter is going to give us practical teaching. What does it mean to be an alien in an exile? And what does it mean? Practically, what does this look like? Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. This is the central idea of this passage, the central thrust of this passage. It's the command of this passage, servants, be subject. To your masters, even the unjust ones, be subject. So, who is Peter speaking to here? Who is Peter speaking to in First Peter two? He's speaking to servants. It's right there, very very beginning. Servants, and really, this means slaves. This means slaves. Uh, we can be a bit nice here, and uh, some people think that this was translated this way as a way to kind of blunt the force of the passage to maybe be a bit kind. But really, we're talking about slaves here. So let's not blunt this passage too much. And we have to be careful here because when we as 21st century Americans hear the word slave, all sorts of things immediately pop into mind. We have a long and terrible history with slavery in this country. And we have to recognize here that when Peter brings up the topic of slavery, he's talking about something that is different from the slavery that we know so well. The sort of slavery that is in view here is not the same exact sort of slavery that is completely and obviously evil and sinful that we have experienced here in the United States. This sort of slavery is not based on race. It's not based on age. It's not based on uh, economic status. It's not based on gender or anything that we might think that slavery might be based on. In fact, this sort of slavery It is a slavery that many people were actually uh, sold or they sold themselves into or they entered into this slavery as a result of being a, a, a prisoner of war. And so there's some fundamental differences about this type of slavery. Not only that, but these slaves, the slaves in this particular context that Peter is dealing with, they could also be thought very highly of. Many of them held uh, prestigious offices in their communities. Many of them had great influence and power. They were respected. They had a certain amount of dignity, a certain amount of rights. There were a lot of things about this sort of slavery that are very different than what we know about slavery. One of the chief ones is that they could actually buy themselves out of slavery. They didn't have to stay in slavery. They themselves could get out of slavery. Nevertheless, We need to be careful not to blunt this too much. We are still dealing with slaves. There might uh, be some differences here. They might have dignity and respect and honor. Nevertheless, they are property. Nevertheless, they are property. In, In some circumstances, we know that these slaves, these servants were treated terribly In fact, we have recordings that say that some people considered slaves to be so low on the social status that the only thing that differentiated them between an animal and a tool was the fact that they could talk. And so this is a difficult thing to be dealing with. Peter here is addressing slaves. And so it could be a bit jarring for us as Christians in the 21st century, as people who live in the United States to see the topic of slavery be brought up and Peter not to immediately talk about how this is terrible and should be done away with. That could be jarring for us. Why in the world wouldn't Peter come and, and shut, uh, uh, chop the legs out from underneath this terrible societal evil? We have to recognize here that Peter's goal in this passage is not to come and to start a social justice movement. Peter's goal here is to recognize that evil exists in this world and that it it has had effects on this world. And he he wants to instruct those Christians who are in the midst of this evil, fallen, and messed up world. He wants to instruct Christians where they are. And where are they? Well, many of these Christians find themselves in the midst of slavery, under the bondage and yoke of slavery. And so he wants to say, this is what it means to be a Christian in those circumstances. This is what it means to be an alien and an exile, to honor Christ wherever you are. I want to talk to you particularly, you people who are in slavery. And so Peter desires here to instruct these Christians where they are. And how does he desire to instruct these Christians? What are they to do? Well, they're to submit to their master's. They're submit to their masters, even the unjust ones. This is a terribly difficult commandment. I hope nobody is sitting out there going, oh, that sounds easy and reasonable. This is a difficult commandment, right? This is a difficult commandment. This is not lost on Peter. They are to endure the potentially very real sorrows that come with entrusting themselves to a faithful creator and submitting to unjust masters. There's a sorrow that comes with that. Peter recognizes that. Nevertheless, this is what they're to do, submit to unjust masters. And so what does this look like? They're to respond to unjust suffering without bitterness, Without returning evil for evil, they are to respond not by seeking revenge, not by grumbling, but by seeking the good of their unjust masters. In other words, they are to treat them with all respect, as our passage says. This is how these slaves and servants are to respond in this terribly difficult circumstance. They're to trust and they're to submit to unjust masters and treat them with all respect. Now, why does this matter for us this morning? Why does this matter for us? We may not be literal slaves or servants here this morning, but we are a people that have legitimate authorities in our lives. We are husbands and wives. We are friends and siblings and employees and employers. And so we have all different forms of relationships. And within these relationships, there are legitimate authorities that that we have submitted ourselves to. And Peter is wanting to speak into these various relationships. How do we live as aliens and exiles in this world? How do we, the people of God, the Christians, the saints, how do we live? Well, we recognize these authorities and we submit ourselves in respect and honor to the glory of God. We do this even when these authorities are unjust. We return evil with good. That's what this passage is about. It's Peter instructing us, the people of God, to return evil with good. We return evil with good. That is what we do. That is who we are. When we find our boss, our husbands, our wives, our teachers committing evil against us, then we are to return that evil with good. And so this morning, I have three main points. Three main points are going to be building upon this central thrust Uh, Three points that I really hope that at the end of the day, we see the grace of God in the background of all of these points. These points are really primarily going to be dealing with why. Why would we submit ourselves to unjust masters? Why would we do this? And then we'll have a final point that deals both with why, but also with how do we submit ourselves to unjust masters. This is a difficult command. Nevertheless, this is one that we are called to, and I think we will see God's grace in the midst of all of this. God is not unkind to demand so much of us. So first point, why? Why would we submit ourselves to unjust masters? As Christians, we are people who return evil with good for this pleases God. We return evil with good for this pleases God. See this in verses 18 through 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For, for, this tells us why or it denotes purpose. For, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, this is how we do this. We are mindful of God. We're not just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but we're leaning on God. We're thoughtful of God. We're doing this to God. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So once again, this passage begins, or verse 19 begins with the word for, tells us why, why would we do this? Well, because this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing. And then once again, verse 20 repeats this idea. Why do we do this? This is a gracious thing to suffer for doing good rather than to suffer because we deserve it. And so we're getting repetition. This idea is being repeated. Peter is drawing our minds to a central idea in the passage. Why do we suffer for doing good? Why in the world? Well, because this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's why. Do you wanna know why? That's why. Because it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. But what does that mean? What does that mean? That's not necessarily the easiest of phrases to wrap our minds around, right? What does it mean to suffer or uh, to uh, do this because it is a gracious thing in the sight of God? But when Peter says this, he's getting at the idea of credit, at the idea of credit. So when we are people who fight the good fight of faith by submitting ourselves to unjust masters, we do that to the glory of God, being mindful of God as best as we possibly can. Peter is saying this is a credit worthy thing, a credit worthy thing. Now that's not to say that this is a thing that we do in order to earn a salvation or earn our way or status before God. But when we are people who faithfully endure being mindful of God, leaning on Jesus name, it is a thankworthy or a commendable thing that we do. God sees this and he loves it. It pleases him. That's why we do this, because it pleases God. It, God loves this. He sees it. And so Peter is telling us something about being an alien and an exile in this world, even in the face of, of a seemingly impossible command. And that's what this is for many people. Please don't misunderstand here. You may not be in a situation where this strikes you as being all that difficult, but there are some people, no doubt, in this room who they hear this, and they start making connections, and they go, this is hard. This is hard. You don't understand how hard this is for me. You don't understand my family background. You don't understand what my work is like. Peter is speaking to people who are recognizing this as a seemingly impossible command. And he says, why are we to do this? Because Christians are people who live for the fame of the Father, for the smile of the Father, for the pleasure of the Father. That's why. Why do we do this? Why do we submit ourselves to such a potentially demeaning and difficult thing? Because God loves it. Because he is pleased by it. And please make no mistake, he sees it and he finds it commendable in his sight. Uh, A few weeks back, uh, so I work with the student ministry at La Mirada and here at Fullerton. That's kind of my main role at Grace. And a few weeks back, we took our entire student ministry, our, our high school students, up to the mountains to Big Bear. And we do this every year. And the goal is to open the Scriptures, spend an extended amount of time studying the Scriptures, pouring our time into the Word. And it's always thematic in some way. And so this year, we were really looking to the end of the story. We wanted to see how everything's going to end and see how that informs how we live now. And so that took us to Revelation 20. And in particular, it took us to the judgment throne of God. And so it's a striking image, the judgment seat of God, where, where the, the the dead gather before the throne and these books are laid bare and these books contain the the deeds of the dead. And, And this has always been a sobering thought for me. And it was a sobering moment being up in the mountains considering this and reading it because you begin to realize that this means that God has seen every thought, attitude, and action that I have ever had. Every every single thing. There's nothing that has been hidden from His sight, and every one of those things has been recorded, and it will be laid bare one day. And that can be sobering. That can be really difficult to wrestle with. I remember the summer that the last Harry Potter book came out. Some of you may remember that. I was uh, I was working at an AT and T store at the time, and I'm. I was and still am a bit of a Harry Potter nut, and so I, like many other people, went and immediately bought the final Harry Potter book and did my best to blaze through this book as fast as possible. However, work got in the way, and so I had to go to AT&T, but like a faithful Harry Potter fan, I took my book with me <laughs> to work, and uh, and I was working a night shift, and and it was just dead. There was nobody coming in the store. There, It was... You know, it's no big deal. So I went in the back, grabbed my book, and I went out onto the floor and I started reading Harry Potter. And I know this was wrong, but in my mind, this was a very victimless crime. So I went home that night, continued to read Harry Potter, came back to work the next day, and my boss, my manager, called me into his office. And so I go into his office and as soon as I walk in, I see over on the right on a security monitor, a still frame of me sitting there with my feet propped up on a desk, like a total punk, reading Harry Potter. And my boss, his name was Donald, looked at me and he said, Jackson, I saw you. And my stomach just twisted and I hung my head. And I know that I had been seen. He said, I saw you. I I know that this is a busy time in your life. I know you're balancing a lot. Um, I know you're at work and you're in school and you're you're doing a lot of different things, but you just can't study while you're out on the floor at work. (laughs) I was like... (laughs) I was like, yes, sir. Absolutely. You are totally right. Yes, sir. And... (laughs) He's like, you know, I mean, if, if you're having trouble finding time to study, then, then we, you know, we can work together. Come talk to me. We'll make sure you have plenty of time to, to take care of all this stuff. Yes, sir. Absolutely. It will not happen again. So, all right. Thank you so much for having this conversation. So. Even though my boss did not see this whole situation play out completely accurately, he he didn't have a perfect knowledge and vision of the situation, it was sobering to realize that my sin, and that's what that was, was lived out before the face of my boss. I hated that, it was a hard thing. It is an even more sobering reality to recognize that every single thing I did, including dishonoring and disobeying my boss, was live before the face of the faithful creator of the heavens and the earth. There is not a single thing that we do that is hidden from the sight of God. We live our lives before the face of God, every thought, attitude, and action. These things are being recorded, and one day they will be laid bare. We will give an account. This is sobering. I hope that that strikes you and you start to go, whoa. And so this has always sobered me. It's always been a heavy thing. But then I get to passages like this one, and I Find this incredibly comforting. I find this incredibly comforting. For just as God sees our sin, just as he sees me caring more about horcruxes and hollows than obeying my boss and living to the glory of God, he also sees the righteous deeds of the saints and he is pleased by them. And so when we suffer for doing good, when we return good when we return evil with good, God sees this and he is blessed by it. God sees it when we return the harsh words of a spouse with gentleness and respect. God sees it when you resolve in your heart to be mindful of God and endure the unfair criticism you receive at work or at school. God sees it when you seek to bless those who persecute you or love those who hate you. God sees it when you return evil with good. You might feel as if you were all alone in your particular struggle. You might feel as if nobody notices you are in this and it is terrible. But notice when you seek to fight the good fight of faith and endure in this difficult way, God sees it and he loves it. It is commendable in His sight. It is a gracious thing in His sight. These deeds are being recorded. They will not pass away unnoticed. Rather, one day, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory, will one day, who will one day vindicate notices, and He will honor us as a result. This is good news. This is very good news. And so Peter begins. He gives us this difficult command. Be subject to your unjust masters. Return evil with good. Why? Because this pleases the Father. Because this puts a smile on the face of the Father. It's a gracious thing in his sight. Nevertheless, Peter recognizes the difficulty of this passage. And so he wants to pile on the whys here. Why do we do this? Well, he's not finished. He wants to continue to make his case. So first, why do we do this? Because it pleases the Father. It's a gracious thing in his sight. Second, why do we do this? Why do Christians... Uh, submit ourselves to unjust masters to return evil with good. We return evil with good for this is our identity. For this is our identity. I think we see this in verse 21. Verse 21 says, for, once again, denotes purpose, tells us why. For to this you have been called. For to this you have been called. Being subject, Being subject to masters of all kinds, even those who are unjust, is our calling. It is our calling. Why do we return evil with good? Because that's who we are. That's who we are as Christians. This is our identity as those who are in Christ, as Christ's followers, exiles and aliens, those who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, those who are being built up into a spiritual house, are people who are called to submit ourselves to unjust masters. There's an idea of vocation here. The root of vocation is to call. And so that leads some to refer to this particular passage as the holy vocation of the Christian. To submit to unjust masters is the holy vocation of the Christian. Do you have an idea, a sense that it is your job as a Christ follower, Christ follower to submit to unjust masters? That's your job. That is your holy vocation. It is who we are. Why? Why is this such a holy vocation? Why is this such a holy calling? Why is this our identity? If we look, we we can answer this in a myriad of ways, but I think there's a very clear answer back in chapter 2. If you look at verse 12 in chapter 2, I think we see a very clear answer to this. Why is this a holy calling? Verse 12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is an evangelistic calling. It is an evangelistic calling. Why do we return evil with good? That the gospel might be preached, that the gospel might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth that our spouses, our bosses, our teachers who do not know the Lord, that they might see Christ and they might see him as glorious, as satisfying, as wonderful, as the one who is pleasing, who gives joy, that they might see him as beautiful and that they might recognize their own sin, repent and believe in Jesus, that one day they will stand beside us as brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than those who are being, uh, that God is uh, pouring out his just judgment upon. I've had the distinct privilege of seeing this actually be played out in my life. Uh, I've I've actually seen this process in a beautiful and wonderful way. When I was in college, uh, my first job in college was working at a coffee shop. And um, in this coffee shop, it was just known that I was a Christian. I had shared my faith with many people there. I had just kind of talked about Jesus and and let people know that I was a Christian. I didn't mean to beat people over the head with the Bible, but it was just kind of known who I was and where I stood. And so I sought to do my best to love people and live in light of who I was as a Christ follower. Well, I worked with this girl. She was a little bit older than me, and, uh, and it was clear that she hated God. She lived a blatantly anti-God sort of lifestyle, and she was totally fine with it. Uh, she made it clear to anybody who would listen to her that, she, that God had no place in her life, nor would he ever. And so uh, as I worked alongside this girl uh, over the course of time, I began to notice that she just didn't seem to like me all that much. She just didn't care for me, it seemed to be. And so I sought to love her in the midst of that. Well, over the course of time, her generally not liking me obviously turned into outright disdain for me. And and I just couldn't wrap my mind around this. And the only thing that I could conclude was is that she didn't like me because I was a Christian. I couldn't prove that, but it just seemed to me to be the likely thing that was going on. And so in my heart, I, I resolved to love her and to do whatever I could to present Christ as beautiful to her, to not put any sort of bl- a stumbling block in front of her that she might... Um, not see Christ uh, the way that she should see Christ or that something that might validate her uh, unfounded beliefs towards Christians. So I, I tried my best to live out a passage like this and actually return evil with good. And it didn't really do much. It didn't really do much. But after a good while, she actually came to me one day and said, so you hate me, don't you? And I was, What? what my mind twisted and I'm like I've been doing everything in my power to show you uh, loving kindness to be gracious to you to return your evil with good and you're going to come to me and say that I hate you I didn't say that out loud but I was feeling this in my heart like how in the world can you say and I go no absolutely not why would you feel that way so Christians hate people like me don't they I go no no, I'm so sorry if, if you've gotten that impression somehow, but that is absolutely not the fact. I'm so sorry if Christians in some way, shape, or form have demonstrated to you that God, is, uh, that God hates you in this way. I'm so sorry, but that is not true at all. Uh, we are people who are moved by the fact that we have been loved and forgiven, and so we seek to love and forgive others, not perfectly, but, but no, I absolutely don't hate you. And she goes, okay, and walks off. I'm like, well, all right. And so she doesn't talk to me. um, And then about two weeks later, uh, she comes to me and she says, so how could a good God allow evil to exist in this world? And I am 19 years old. I'm a 19-year-old barista. And I am not qualified to handle this question. And she comes to me after not talking to me for super long, after treating me bad, trying to get me in trouble, ignoring me for all this time. And she comes to me with that question, the problem of evil. And so I pray quickly, and I do my best to blunder through giving an answer, probably the worst answer that you could give to the problem of evil. But I try my best, and she goes, huh, and walks off. Doesn't talk to me again for another two weeks. Then she comes, and she kind of does the same thing. And over the course of about six or seven months, she starts coming to me every two weeks, and she brings a theological question, or she brings a, why do Christians do that sort of thing, or why don't they do this sort of questions? And I just did my best to be faithful in that time. But over the course of time, these questions eventually turned more and more into just regular conversation. And before too long, a relationship began to develop, a friendship. And and I learned that she had a kid. And I learned about her home life. And I learned about uh, where she went to school and what she'd been doing in her life these past several years. And it just turned into a sweet sort of friendship and relationship. And I did my best to be faithful and to preach the gospel in the midst of that. Well, after a good long while, this was not a short process, she came to me one day and said, Jackson, I have something to tell you. Okay. Well, I, I haven't brought this up the past few weeks. I don't know why, but for the past several weeks, I've been going to church with my parents, and I wanted you to know. Last night, I believed in Christ, and uh, and so I was looking at this girl who had once lived in blatantly anti-Christian sort of lifestyle. Uh, who hated me for a good while, who admitted that she hated me for a good while. And I was no longer looking at somebody who hated me, but I was looking at a sister in Christ. I was yoked to this person in a way that only the blood of Christ could yoke a person. You know, the Bible doesn't promise us that if we seek to be obedient in this way that people will necessarily be saved. But this is a part of our holy vocation, and this is clearly one of the ways that God has uh, ordained it to be that the gospel will be proclaimed and advanced amongst a lost and sinful people. This is a way that God's word will speed ahead and that people will see Christ, behold Christ, and believe in him. And so why would we be a people who submit ourselves to unjust masters that the lost might have this thing played out in their lives, that husbands and wives and teachers and coworkers and bosses and employees might behold Christ and they might believe in Christ and that one day we might count them as brothers and sisters on the day of visitation. We have to recognize that to live in light of our holy vocation is going to force us to have a gigantic paradigm shift. For many of us, we are so accustomed to thinking that this life is about us. It's about our comfort. It's about our personal happy, happiness. It's about our ease. And so we bristle at the idea of suffering uh, injustice. We hate that idea. It bothers us. It rages against who we are deep down inside. And so it is natural for us to shun those who treat us unjustly, to shun uh Uh, harsh spouses, to to shun those bosses who treat us unfairly, to treat them unkindly. But we as Christians are called to something better. That is not our identity. We are called to something better. We have a holy vocation, a set apart vocation. We are not to be the distributors of justice. Rather, we submit ourselves to our maker and we faithfully endure in all respect, trusting that he will uh, um, dish out justice in due time. So Peter here is telling us why we return evil with good. This pleases God as a gracious thing, but also this is who we are as Christians. This is one of the means in which God is evangelizing a lost and dying world. This is one of the ways that the gospel will be preached. This is who we are. And so we can wrestle here with the idea of why. Nevertheless, this is a hard commandment. And so the question that's going to arise is how in the world do we do this? How do we do this? I have the why in my head, but this is hard. How do we do this? Well, the answer has everything to do with Jesus. The answer has everything to do with Jesus. We return evil with good by looking to Christ. We return evil with good by looking to Christ. Verses 21 through 25, we'll see this. 4 To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled he did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten, but we see how we are to submit to unjust masters, how we are to return evil with good. How do we submit? How do we return evil with good? Christ, Christ. Jesus is the one who shows us the way. Jesus is the one who enables us. Jesus and his gospel are central to this entire conversation. These verses put two incredibly important categories before us. Important categories for understanding all of life, for understanding the scriptures, and two important categories for understanding how to live this hard commandment out. Jesus as our example and Jesus as our substitute. Jesus as our example and Jesus as our substitute. I I wanna just take a second and deal with these two categories and I wanna start by looking at Jesus as our example. What does it look like to be a slave and submit ourselves to unjust masters with all respect? Well, we can look to Jesus and he will show us the way. Peter draws here on Isaiah 53, which prophesies the suffering servant. I think the language here is is meant to, we're meant to draw a connection between the servants here. Uh, So uh, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, is being prophesied and, and it It's being used here to tell us about Jesus' example. Jesus was without sin. No deceit was in his mouth. He was reviled and he didn't revile in return. He suffered and he didn't threaten. So we see the truth of Peter's statement and Isaiah's prophecy played out in the Gospels. Jesus was betrayed by his friends, including the person who was writing this letter. Jesus was slandered by his countrymen. He was betrayed. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was—he had insults hurled at him. He was scourged. He was humiliated. He was hung upon a cross and he died. And in all of this, how did Jesus respond? How did Christ respond as he submitted himself to unjust masters? He did not revile in return. He did not threaten. He trusted him who judges justly. How in the world do we, like slaves, submit ourselves in all respect to unjust masters? How is that possible? How do we return evil with good? We look to Jesus. We follow in his steps. And what did he do? He looked to the Father, and he believed in the goodness and the faithfulness and the justice of his Father. He trusted that his God or that his father was good and that he would be the perfect distributor of justice, that we didn't have to do this. We don't have to vindicate ourselves because God will one day do that. He looked to his father and saw how good he was and that he would not allow this thing to happen apart from his goodness, The reality is is that every single injustice that is committed against us, every act of evil that is committed against us is seen. It is recorded. One day, every one of these sins will be dealt with. These sins will be dealt with at the cross or in eternal torment away from the presence of God. Jesus... And all of this is our illustration. He is our example. He is our model. If we want to know why and how we do this, we look to Christ, our forerunner. And so the very important implication here is, is that if we are not looking to Christ, if we are not going to Him in His word, in prayer, amongst the community of the saints, if we are not going to Christ, if we are not looking to Christ, then we will be people who are left rudderless, in this, in this journey. We will left, be left adrift in an open sea. We are hopeless apart from Christ. Therefore, look to Jesus, our example. So Jesus is our example in this, but he is also our substitute. He's also our substitute. So uh, we see this in verse 21. In verse 21, we see a very, very key word, the word for. Jesus suffered... And he didn't just simply suffer. And he didn't simply suffer as our example. He suffered for you, for you. Verse 24 elaborates on this. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds, you have been healed. In these verses, Jesus not only goes before us as an example, but he stands in our place as our substitute. The scary reality is, is that every way that Christ succeeds in this passage, we have failed. Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is not true of you and me. This is not true of you and me. Christ did not revile or return suffering for suffering. Not true of you and me. We have returned evil with evil. More than that, we have treated others unjustly. But God, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, has pursued us in Christ. He was not content to let us continue in our sinful and evil ways, which separate from creator. So Christ died. So Christ died. He became our substitute. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The iniquity of us was laid upon him. He was pierced for our transgressions. Christ stood in our place. Jesus is our substitute. And so... Notice the result of all of this. Verse 24, the result of Christ, our example, our substitute, Christ bore our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ not only saved us from something, but he saved us to something. He saved us to be like him and enduring unjustly, our unjust suffering. So in all of this, we see the centrality of the gospel. How do we stand? Because Christ stood in our place. How do we live? By following Christ's perfect example. The only way Peter's commandment can be lived out is because of Christ. The only way. So many have succinctly stated that the gosp- that in the gospel, we have been freed from the power and the penalty of sin. And we see that beautifully in these verses. On the cross, Christ bore the penalty of sin in our place. But at the very same time, because Christ went before us, because he bled and died, the bonds of slavery that once so tightly shackled us and kept us in our slavery have been broken. And now we can, in fact, live to Christ. We can, in fact, endure. We can, in fact, obey this difficult command. We can submit ourselves to unjust masters. We can return evil with good because of the gospel. So at the end of all of this, there is a simple main application. Return evil with good. Submit yourselves to unjust masters. It's not easy, but we see the why and the how here. This is the central command. This is the application. This is what it means to live out our alien and exile lives as Christians. But I would like to just offer a few quick additional applications Uh, that I think are really important for us as we wrestle with this difficult passage. And the first is this, be a good friend. Be a good friend. If we are really called to subject ourselves to unjust masters, if this really is our holy vocation and this pleases God, then this should really have an impact on how we counsel our friends. So often, brothers and sisters in Christ will come to us and they will tell us about a terribly difficult situation. They will lament their work situation or or how difficult their marriage has been. And so often, our first step is to just jump in and, and just say, yeah, absolutely, that's the worst situation, and just encourage them in their bitterness, encourage them in the difficulty of this situation. In light of Peter's words, though, I think we need to be better counselor givers, counsel givers. What would it look like for us to respond to these sorts of laments, recognizing the seriousness of them, recognizing the sorrow in the situations and, and, and lamenting with them, but moving on from that lament to, in, to not encourage dissent, but by helping our friends to see a holy opportunity, an opportunity to live out their holy vocation. This is an opportunity to bless the Lord, to worship, to have our idolatry rooted out, to preach the gospel. Be quick to recognize the upside down nature of the kingdom of God whenever people are coming to us and they're lamenting the fact that we live in an evil and messed up fallen world. Let us be better friends. Second, let us wrestle well within the community. Let us wrestle well within the community. This passage is a tricky passage in some ways because Peter offers no qualifications. He doesn't say, be subject to your masters unless this is the particular situation you find yourself in. Instead, he offers this simple command, be subject, be subject. And I'm confident that that many of us respond in our hearts and minds with all sorts of objections, I think that's the first step of many of us to find the loophole, the reason why this doesn't actually apply for us. And I think the reason that Peter doesn't offer us uh, any qualifications is because we actually need to be hit with the radical nature of this passage. We need to be pierced and recognize that what it means to be a Christian is to live in light of this command. And so most of us need to start there. But nevertheless, nevertheless, there are situations that require a lot of wisdom and careful thought. This passage needs to be read in light of all of Scripture. For for example, 1 Corinthians tells slaves to take their freedom, if they can get it, avail themselves of the opportunity for freedom. And so we need to be careful to to really carefully and biblically think through the implications of this passage. And and I think rather than just excusing ourselves from this and rather than uh, just allowing this to blanket cover our lives, we need to be people who take a passage like this and wrestle within the context of community. Go to grace groups. Go to the small groups that we're a part of. Uh, Wrestle with the people who are to your left and your right and seek to apply this with the help of other brothers and sisters who are committed to your good and to the glory of God. So go to grace group. Talk about this. If you're not in a grace group, be a part of one so that you can wrestle and apply the word in that community, in that context. Wrestle well within the community. Do not oppress, do not oppress. Peter does not tell us here to abolish slavery, nor does he deal explicitly with how we are to view societal injustice. But I think we can clearly, clearly see God's heart in all of this. We can clearly see God's heart. Christians are those who are to suffer for doing good. They are those who return evil with good and entrust themselves to their faithful uh, creator who judges justly. Therefore, to actually be the oppressor is unthinkable. It is unthinkable. This is so far away from being in keeping with God's character that Peter doesn't even deal with it. Therefore, if you are finding yourselves as the bully this morning, as the oppressor, as the, 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 person in the marriage who is harsh and oppressive, the teacher who is domineering, the boss who is domineering, if you are the oppressor this morning, the bully this morning, then recognize this is not in keeping with the character of God, with what it means to be a Christian. And so allow the word here to pierce you. Allow it to cut deep inside of you. Recognize your sin. Be convicted of it and repent. Run from it. Believe in Jesus. Once again, wrestle with this in the context of community. Go to people and talk to them saying, this is actually me. Let us not find ourselves as the oppressors as we read this passage. If that is us, repent. Believe in Jesus. This is not what God requires of us. Last, again, I say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The only way any of us will stand is by looking to Christ, beholding Christ, believing in Christ. He is the one who delivers us from the power and penalty of sin. Therefore, go to him, hide in him, hope in him, and live. Let's pray. Father, we praise your holy name. You are a good God. And Lord, you are good in giving us your divine self-revelation, your word, telling us who you are, how you have delivered us from sin, and how we're to live in light of uh, our identity in Christ. Help us, Lord, now to go and apply this word. Would your spirit work powerfully in doing surgery on our hearts, Lord? Would you uh, convict us? Would you compel us? Would you encourage us? Would you overwhelm us with your glorious grace? Help us, Lord. We love you. and We praise you. And we offer you this time as an act of worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray.